Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. We just ticked off every HP Lovecraft fan there is with that. That was so so. cheesy. Um, This is uh, Stuff You Should Know. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Bryant. And who else is in here? Uh, I was going to wait a minute. Oh, okay. I was going to lead up to that. Well, there's no one else in here. No, no one. Um, Today, we are doing a special podcast on... The Necronomicon. Yeah. Um, And uh, for those of you who don't know what the Necronomicon is, it is arguably the most famous fictional text ever created in the history of American literature. It is an evil book. Yes. One might say. Uh Uh-huh. Created by probably my favorite author, H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, I didn't realize this. You told me this. I didn't I love Lovecraft. My favorite um, stories are uh, Dreams in the Witch House, Uh where he basically equates um, physics to witchcraft. Like, witches have a a really, an advanced grasp on physics. Really? It's awesome. Wow. It's so cool. I'm going to have to read um, some of this stuff. Strange Case of Charles Dexter Ward is probably the greatest one he's ever written. It's amazing. Really? Uh, yeah, you got to read that. And these stuff. are short stories? Novellas? Uh, well, the the next one's a novella, uh, At the Mountains of Madness. Excellent ah, okay. story. I've heard of that one. Actually, that one kind of factors into what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I don't know if the Necronomicon makes an appearance, but what the Necronomicon deals with is uh, all over the place there. So, Chuck, let's... Despite my love of Lovecraft, yes, it, it's painfully obvious to both of us that we're mere fleas compared to some other people out there who are Lovecraft fans, right? right? The dogs. And we figured that we were going to get nothing but angry emails for this one. And they take it pretty seriously, I would imagine. They, they, they don't want us to uh, poop on their hero and their icon. No, and he's my hero, too, but I just, I don't. I can't don't, do it justice. No, I can't. So instead, we decided to bring in who we'll call the shield. Okay. Who can who can take all of the angry uh, emails? And that is our friend, colleague, and fellow podcaster Jonathan Strickland. Paramore. Yes, we have a special guest today. Chuck wasn't lying; I was. Yes. So, hey, Strick, how's it going? Hey there, guys. Um, going pretty well. Thanks for having me on. I I really enjoyed writing both Cthulhu and the Necronomicon articles. So I'm they're awesome. to be here. Very very cool articles. Well, you're you're kind of raised on these, weren't you? Doesn't your dad write weird fiction? Yeah. Um. My father's name's Brad Strickland, so if you were to do a search for that on Amazon, you would see that he's written quite a few novels, several of which fall into the horror or weird fiction category. So, right. yeah, I grew up around this stuff. This was your life. And yes. Pretty cool. And your your dad predicted Teddy Ruxpin. That's true, but has nothing to do with Lovecraft or Cthulhu or the Necronomicon. Right. No, it doesn't. My parents were t- school teachers. So not nearly as exciting. My dad was a mechanical engineer. I didn't grow up with a Cthulhu and strange beasts that would drive you insane just to look upon its face. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Lesson which, plans. Which is something. It's a point that you make in the uh, in the articles you wrote, Strick, was that these these creatures that the Necronomicon deals with, um, they'll drive you crazy just by looking at them or by you know interacting with them. Usually, terrible, terrible things happen. Right. And at the center of the Necronomicon is Cthulhu, Cthulhu, or there's a pronunciation um, that Lovecraft wrote in a letter to a fellow author, right? Yes. And how, how is that one pronounced? <laughs> 
You know, why are you hitting me with that all all of a sudden? Okay, let, let's let's be clear here. Lovecraft actually makes a point to say that these otherworldly creatures have their own language, right. which humans are incapable of uh, repeating. I love that. There's, that that there's, makes it very mysterious and creepy to me. Yeah, it's the same sort of nature as as the they have this appearance that we are uh, we cannot comprehend. If we were to look upon it, as you say, we would go crazy. So, right. it actually takes a lot of pressure off. Because you can name things whatever you like. You can put as many consonants yeah. and, and little apostrophes in there. And so you can call it whatever you like. And, and when people say, how do you pronounce it? You just respond, you can't. But uh, Cthulhu is one that I think most Lovecraft um, scholars would argue is the appropriate pronunciation. Right. But the way I've always said it and the way that most of the fans that I've talked to have always said it is Cthulhu. Right. Was it, wasn't there a rumor early on that the Cloverfield movie was uh – the monster was the Cthulhu. Yeah, that was um, very early on when that that preview first hit, and right. there was not even a title for the movie yet. Yeah, in yeah, fact, there was right. no title internally for the movie. Uh, people could only get little glimpses of what was going on, and a lot of people said, "Hey, maybe this is the Cthulhu movie we've all been waiting for. Right. This is actually the monster." I wonder why I haven't made that yet. Well, I think well, there have been several movies that have tried to tap into the Lovecraft universe, and only a few have been really successful. I think part of the problem is that how do you portray a monster that exactly. is so horrible that you'd go crazy looking that at it? That was what I was thinking was it's probably pretty intimidating for a filmmaker to try and tackle this. Well, there there are descriptions of Cthulhu. What's right? It? So he basically, he has wings. Um, he resembles... You're um, saying he. I, just by looking at this, yeah, think about this. I Chuck. just do with you, Lovecraft. Do you, think, do you think feminine when you hear this? Wings, <laughs> huge leathery wings. Yes. Part octopus. <laughs> yes. Part dragon. Woman. Part, part man. No, I wouldn't say, I just seems like with Lovecraft's thing, he would say, it is a gender that cannot be defined. Yeah, I would agree. Unnameable. Okay. So we'll call him he. Okay, so we will call Cthulhu he. <laughs> okay, so... Um, Cthulhu, and the whole reason we're talking about him is the he figures at the center of the uh, Cthulhu mythos that uh, that Lovecraft created during the course of his writing. And, and Strickland, when was he most prolific? It was it during the twenties? Uh, yeah, we're talking about just right around that era, late twenties, um, pretty much. What What's really interesting to me is that Cthulhu became the central of this, uh, the center figure of this mythos, but. It's not the creature that Lovecraft wrote about the most. Cthulhu really only fa factors into a couple of stories and, in fact, is described in some as being a priest kind of figure for the Old Ones, which is this race of creatures Lovecraft created. Yeah, but he never said whether he was uh, a priest that led the worship of the Old Ones or whether he was the priest to the Old Ones. That's that's correct. So that's... You know, I'm just going to leave the room. You guys are nerding out on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that it's really the fans of Lovecraft who kind of latched on to Cthulhu and made uh -huh. it the central figure of his mythology. Uh, if you were to read all the stories, you would say, why? I mean, it, it is a very striking kind of image, uh -huh. but why this over any other particular? Like, why not a Shabbath? Right. Is there a or, reason for that? Or I think it's mainly because when you do read the descriptions uh, – they are very compelling, oh, right? And I think that I think it's also probably one of the ones that are, that's easier to imagine than right. some of the other. A lot of the other ones end up being shapeless. Well, that's kind of <laughs> yeah. hard to imagine. That's no so. fun. Or uh, mindless um, 
being, cosmic being who rules at the center of chaos, mm-hmm. that's kind of difficult to, um, to, to conceive of. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's, it's very hard to make a plush toy of that. <laughs> right. A Furby. <laughs> I think the other reason that Cthulhu um, has become such a prominent figure in Lovecraftian lore is that he's still here on Earth. He was, um, he was one of the rulers of Earth along with the Great Old Ones, right? That's correct. And then uh, he had a city that uh, was called Rillier, actually still is, that sunk under the waters. And what's interesting is that depending on which story you're reading, you can kind of locate where Rillier is. It's off the, the coast of South America. And uh, there have been some interesting, weird things that have gone on in, in that general area that people jokingly attribute to Cthulhu. Uh, saying, hey, you know, it's Cthulhu snoring. Um, right. Like uh, 1997, I know you put a little sidebar that was pretty interesting, that uh, they detected uh, with underwater microphones what uh, a very lo- uh, loud, low, repeating sound uh, somewhere out in the middle of the ocean out there. Right. And that they said, oh, well, that's just a whale song. But then marine biologists came in and say, oh, that's not a whale and that's, unless that's the biggest whale in the history of the universe. Right. It was such a loud and prolonged sound that it would be it would have to be made by a creature larger than anything that we currently know of. Cthulhu. <laughs> right. So, hey, Cthulhu, it's got to be him. It's interesting. If you listen to the sound unaltered, it's just this really low rumble and it goes on for ages. Uh, but if you speed it up really fast, uh-huh. it goes bloop. Really? Which is why they call it the bloop. There you have it. Which is also why a lot of people thought um, the Cloverfield monster was Cthulhu, because apparently on the on the official website there was a, a bloop, right? Oh, was there? Yeah, they, they tied it into a, a, a fictional um, slushy maker, Japanese company. And, uh, okay. And so that had something to do with it as well. Once people started seeing the supplemental material, they started to draw their own conclusions. Right. And of course, they, they turned out to be wrong, but it just shows how imaginative and passionate the Lovecraft fan oh, yeah. base is. And it shows how smart J.J. Abrams is. Oh, yeah. The dude Marketing is, genius. Yes, master marketer. So let's talk a little bit more about the Necronomicon. Sure. Um, so the text, Strickland, is often considered a book of spells. Most of the people who get their hands on the Necronomicon in uh, Lovecraft stories um, end up using it to conjure some of the great old ones. Uh, remember, Cthulhu's the priest of the great old ones. Right. Um, and terrible, terrible things happen. The skies open up. Uh, people tend to disappear uh, in, in under terrible circumstances. And um, the author... Let's talk about the author of the Necronomicon. He himself, the Mad Arab, Abdul Al-Hazred. That's correct. The Mad Arab Abdul Al-Hazred. A.K.A. Opium Fiend. Yes, the 8th century <laughs> Opium Fiend. From Yemen. Uh, supposed to be a, uh, supposedly a poet who uh, at some point gets this, um, well, I, I suppose he gets some strange inspiration, possibly fueled by drugs. Right. And That's a good way to say it. writes down this book called the Necronomicon. Right. Uh, originally called Al, uh, Al-Azif, right? Right. And that, that refers to a sound made by uh, night insects in the desert. Or demons howling, mm-hmm. depending on who you ask. Correct. Right. That's correct. And so we have this, this text that's supposed to be very rambling and crazy and... Uh, 
interesting thing is that Lovecraft never wrote the full Necronomicon. He actually wanted to create it. That's right, and and dabbled on a shorter version at, at one point, right? Right. He wrote a, a couple of passages from an abridged version, and uh-huh. there there are a few passages that are that are fairly famous in Lovecraft lore. But uh, he he wanted to create this mythology where scholars in his world would have certain books they would refer to whenever right. they needed to study these creatures. Okay. And some of those books actually were real, right? That's correct. Some of the books were, in fact, real books that have uh, a historical background. Most of them were just figments of his imagination. He created right. these Lovecrafts, I should say. Sure. A Lovecraft's imagination. Not he, the Mad Arab. No, not the Mad Arab. So, yeah, it's interesting. You're talking about an author, Lovecraft, who creates this fictional author, the, the Mad, Mad Arab, Arab, who in turn creates a fictional book called right. the Necronomicon, right. parts of which Lovecraft actually wrote out. Right. So that is the that is the uh, spoiler for those of you who weren't familiar with this at all. Necronomicon, completely fictional. Mad Arab, completely fictional. And actually what's cool about um, Strickland in the, in the article, you make the point that the uh, – the Necronomicon has not only survived Lovecraft's death, it's thrived. You can find um, versions of it on Amazon. Um, there's actual cults, uh, whether they realize that the, the Necronomicon or accept that the Necronomicon is fictitious, they still, um, it, this, this uh, philosophy of the Necronomicon still figures very much into their outlook. Then there's other, maybe, I, I got the impression slightly nuttier cults that actually don't believe the Necronomicon is fictional, right? But it, it's it's pervaded into reality, correct? Yeah, all of that is right. The uh, it's it is fascinating because since Lovecraft left such huge gaps with the Necronomicon, you know, he only wrote right. little bits and pieces. It's allowed other people to swoop in and fill in those gaps and make and, money and make money. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll never forget. I was in a bookstore. Um, I was in. Uh, uh, I think it was South Carolina. I was in a bookstore. This was when I was a teenager. And I'm looking through the books. I'm just trying to find something to read. And I come across a copy of the Necronomicon. And I had to stop and look again because I thought, wait a minute. How, what? Why would I find right. a, a fictional book in a bookstore? And so I took it down and started reading it. And it was filled with lots of of tortured kind of uh, prose. It, was it, it was, good? No, it was terrible. Did it bite your hand when you tried to grab it? It did not. Evil I Dead did. reference. We'll I, come back yeah. to that later. Yeah. No, no. It was it was a terrible book. It was a terrible attempt at trying to make a book sound really dangerous and spooky, but it was transparent. I mean, it was obvious that it was uh, someone trying a to do phony. this. A big phony. Right. All right, you guys, the, this reality part's boring. Let's go back into the fictional okay. world of Lovecraft and the Necronomicon. Okay. Where are we? Uh, actually, we're no, we're in no particular place. We're just in this version of reality uh, that Lovecraft created. How about that? Okay. All right. So within this world, you have various creatures. You have various uh, books that all of all of which are bad. I mean, that's just there are people who think they can take advantage of them and and gain either power or knowledge or some combination thereof, but it always turns out badly for them. In fact, you kind of wonder why people keep bothering. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, that's really, I mean, that's really what weird fiction is all about. You're talking, when you use the word weird, you don't just mean unusual. Uh-huh. You mean incomprehensible to the human mind. Yeah, I think Josh told me off uh, mic that a lot of uh, other authors kind of have said that's a bit of a cop-out on Lovecraft's part because a lot of times he doesn't have to end up being real creative with his descriptions of things, and he can just say, well, trust me, 
look upon it and you shall go insane. Or it's unnameable. Yeah, or unnameable. Yeah, and, and. I think it's brilliant. That, yeah, there's definitely an argument on either side. You sure. could argue that, well, the human imagination is so powerful that if you leave it up to the individual reader, it's, that person is going to make his or her own most horrifying creature. Right. And there's nothing that you as the writer could describe because you don't know that person. Right. You don't know what would horrify that person. Exactly. But by leaving it up to the, to the reader's imagination, uh, suddenly you've made a much more effective monster. Right. Which so is kind of what they did with Cloverfield, actually. They, they did kind of tap into that because they didn't show the monster very much at all. And I thought it was effective. I liked the movie. No, I, I really enjoyed that as well. I haven't seen it yet. Both of you shut up. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. There's a monster. It's Godzilla. Yeah. Uh, another thing I thought was cool was that uh, Lovecraft at one point said that there are um, only a f- uh, several official copies of the Necronomicon located in, I think you listed five different libraries, and uh, two of them don't even exist. So <laughs> That's he, right. He Arkham dabbled and, so much. Uh, yes, he dabbled so much between reality and fiction that I think it worked. It ended up being like, you don't know what's real and what isn't. Dude, we're back in Lovecraft's world. Okay. okay. Sorry. So Strickland, the Necronomicon was written by uh, Al Hazred, right? And um, he, I, I, I believe he died fairly horribly. Either he was swallowed up after conjuring somebody uh, using the Necronomicon. I think I remember another story where uh, Lovecraft writes about how he was beheaded, but his head was still able to speak. Um, there are uh, several different ways that he supposedly died, but either way, he died. But his book survived, and uh, it stayed in Arabic. Which actually, I believe none of the the Arabic uh, original copies in Arabic exist today. But the um, in 950, somebody else found it, and it was translated into Greek, right? Yes, that's right. There are actually several different translations um, that are mentioned in Lovecraft's stories. Uh, there's Greek. There's there's Hebrew. There's Latin. a few others. There's Latin. I think you um, said in 1228, Elias Wormius was a priest that translated it into Latin, and then it was banned by Pope Gregory. Uh, nine, but in reality, this is what I love, the fiction again. You're not Catholic, are you? No. Is that not Pope Gregory nine? The ninth. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Pope Gregory the ninth. Uh, in reality, the, uh, Oleus Wormius was actually a Dutch physician, so there was no tie there whatsoever. Yeah, that was the mixture of reality and fantasy. Um, now the, the really cool stuff, as far as I'm concerned here, is that, that he's, he's built up a believable enough base that if you were to just read the story without without any other background information, right. you could totally buy into this mythology. Gotcha. He's really made it very rich and believable. He's 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 uh, anchored it in reality. Uh-huh. And um and there are Lovecraftian scholars and fans who will talk of this as if it were all real, as if these Greek and and other translations of the Necronomicon do in fact exist and are in fact in these libraries. Right. Well, I know earlier we were talking, and I thought it was odd that he would. Uh, use people like Elias Warmius, their name, which, you know, was a physician. And then in 1586, Dr. John D. Uh, was an Englishman and a magician, when in fact he was really just an advisor to Queen Elizabeth. And I thought, well, how strange to use these real people. Like, wouldn't he be found out? But you said that, you know, this is the 1920s and there weren't you couldn't go up on the internet and look up who John D was. Right. Now you had people who those names would sound familiar and they'd think, hey, that does le- lead some credence to exactly. this. And I, and, I also compared it to Bram Stoker, uh-huh. who did base Dracula off of the a real person, Vlad Tepish. 
But if you were to look into Vlad Tepish's life, you would see that it doesn't really parallel Dracula at all. You could just see where the inspiration came from. But right. because you have Vlad Dracul, uh-huh. you have this whole persona there, it, it, it lends your story a stronger base in reality. Yeah, yeah. Like you guys said, the uh, Lovecraft was a master at mixing reality and fiction, like uh, with the libraries where you could supposedly find the uh, Necronomicon. But also he would pepper um, some of the books like on the shelves. I remember in The Strange Case of Charles Dexter Ward, uh, his ancestor, what was his ancestor's name? I don't remember either. I don't know. Um, but he, there was, there were tons of books of, uh, magic and the occult, and some of them were real, like the Ars Magna et Ultima, uh, and they would be sitting alongside the, um, the Necronomicon. So right. there were some that were real and some that weren't. Um, and not only did Lovecraft write about that, he would use books that some of his contemporaries had made up. Right. In his books, and they would do, just the same, right? They would mention the Necronomicon in their books. Yeah, there was a lot of cross-pollination going on at this time where uh, you would... Lovecraft loved having friends who were also authors. Right. He, he was a prolific letter writer, and he encouraged his friends to write stories set in his mythology, and then he would write stories set sure. in theirs as well. So you started to get this really rich background that didn't exist in other authors' works. uh, Because, I mean, in a way, it's almost like writing fan fiction, except in this case, the people who are writing fan fiction are really well-known authors. Right, right. But that continues today. You still have people writing within Lovecraft's mythology. And, of course, you have it's expanded beyond just writing uh, books. It's also in movies and television. Right. There's some uh, pretty pretty noteworthy... uh cameos that the Necronomicon has made, most notably uh, in the Evil Dead series. Yes, that's Was my it favorite. in Evil Dead or just Evil Dead 2? No, it's in, it's in Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, and Army of Darkness. Gotcha. Army of Darkness actually was my favorite uh, scene with the Necronomicon because he has to approach it on the hill and repeat the Klatu Varata. And then he, he can't is, remember the last word. Isn't that from uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still? Yeah, that's actually, that was the one of the oh, things about, yeah, Sam Raimi just loves to quote from other uh-huh. movies and, and, and science fiction, horror, everything. I mean, he's, he's one of those guys who just has like that huge labyrinthian yeah. library of, uh, of trivia in sure. his head. And so, yeah, he brought a lot of that out into those movies. But, the the interesting thing about the Necronomicon and those and those movies is that it doesn't really uh, resemble the one in Lovecraft's stories. Right, it's the Book of the Dead is what they call it. Right, in Evil Dead, and it's a, uh, or at least in Army of Darkness, it was like this. Uh, it had an evil face. It was like leather bound, but it had a mouth and eyes, it's, and that's why it bit him when he tried to pick it up, which is what I was referencing earlier. Right, right. It's actually bound in flesh and written in blood. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. And awesome. it's uh, it's a little different from the Necronomicon and Lovecraft stories, but the Necronomicon, you got to admit, that's an awesome name for an evil book. Oh, exactly. So it totally made sense to to reference it. Sure. I mean, you know, and a lot of people, I think, have sort of a passing familiarity with uh-huh. Lovecraft stories stuff. So. If you mention it, they get the idea, oh, that's an evil book. They don't need to have this wealth of information in their heads. Gotcha. So my favorite reference, um, and you actually pointed out in the article, Strick, is um, the the appearance of the Necronomicon in The Simpsons. Did you guys see this one? I did. It was in the episode Brawl in the Family, uh-huh. where uh, there's a, a meeting of the Republican Party, and uh, Mr. Burns goes, and now Bob Dole will read from the Necronomicon. <laughs> and Bob Dole comes to the podium, and he's wearing like a black robe, and he starts chanting in Latin, reading from the book. It's perfect. Awesome. 
Yeah, my I think my favorite is when it makes a very very brief appearance in Friday the Thirteenth Part Nine. Jason goes to hell. It's it's just it's one of those things where the camera's just panning by, and if you pay attention, you see, hey, that's the Necronomicon from the Evil Dead movies. Is it like laying right on there. a table or something? Yeah, it's just it's oh, just cool. there in in the shot. I mean, there's no reference to it. No one picks it up. Where was it? Was it at like Jason's house? Yeah, it's it's toward the it's toward the end of the movie. There's a few different references. Cool. I think you also, if you look, you see a crate that's labeled Arctic Expedition. Nice. So fans <laughs> of uh, horror movies, you'll know what that's from too. So awesome. Uh, Jason goes to hell. Was that the name? Was that that was it? Yeah, that was it. Uh, Also in Pumpkinhead (laughs) Two. Yep. Also in Aquatine Hunger Force, which we love. Excellent. And the real Ghostbusters. Yep. The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, Metaloc. I don't know. Metalocalypse. Thank you. You don't know Metalocalypse. No. What is that? (laughs) That's that's the uh, that's the cartoon on Adult Swim. That uh, details the ad- misadventures of a death metal band called Death Clock. You almost said adventures. Very nice catch. <laughs> misadventures, much different. So uh, this was actually in strict. Thank you so much for coming in, dude. You saved us. <laughs> this is one of those. Every once in a while, we'll do a podcast where, like, this is just the tip of the iceberg. You go read the article. You clearly should go read these articles if we've piqued your interest at yeah. all. First of all, go start reading Lovecraft. He's awesome. Um, he was also an awesome person. His real life, he uh, he had a, uh, a woman that he lived with who was old enough to be his mother that he loved very much, but uh, people uh, posit that they never consummated their relationship. Is that correct? Yep. He was just an all-around weird guy, but really sweet and cute. And, he looks normal. Um, not really. Oh, I think he does in that 1920s sort of story. Well, he doesn't have like a well, yeah, yeah, third eye. You're right. <laughs> um, but he, he was an interesting character, uh, uh, an incredible writer. And uh, Strickland wrote two really good articles on him. So if you want to uh, read more about it, you can go to uh, HowStuffWorks.com and type in Cthulhu, C-T-H-U-L-U, in the search bar. You could also type in Necronomicon, which would be spelled N-E-C-R-O-N-O-M-I-C-O-N, Necronomicon. Uh, you can find both of those articles, and I think if you type either of those words into Google in general, you're going to find a whole world awaits you. Yes, a wealth of information. Interesting stuff. Interesting way to waste some time, right? But you dare not speak it and look at it, or you shall go insane. Clearly. And also, uh, we can all look forward to the day the stars align, and the stone city of Relay uh, rises up out of the ocean, and oh, Cthulhu takes possession of the earth again, and we are all screwed. Awesome. Uh, or, as we would say in Lovecraft's universe, ya ya Cthulhu Fatagan. No better way to end than <laughs> Thank that. Thank you for that. <laughs> no better way to end than that. All right, well, since uh, Strickland just said something that uh, we can't pronounce ourselves, that means it's listener mail time. All right, so Chuck, what do you have for us today? I'm just going to call this the saddest thing I've ever heard. Oh, no. This is from Vic in uh, Lincolnshire, Illinois. It's a little lengthy, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it fast. Uh, Vic is a listener who has uh, borrowed his daughter's iPod indefinitely, he said. He's <laughs> kind of taking it over. That is the saddest thing I've ever it heard. It is, the end. Uh, and he, he, this came about as a suggestion that we do something on wrongful death uh, lawsuits or... Uh, just wrongful death, period. I, I don't like where this is going, Chuck. Back in 1970, my dad had a heart attack and was hospitalized in the coronary care unit. Uh, they had trouble stabilizing his heart rhythm and decided to implant a temporary demand pacemaker. I guess in theory, when his heart needed an assist, the pacemaker would kick in and get things back on track. We went to visit him the next morning. We could tell that uh, everything was kind of crazy in the CCU, people in a frenzy, 
all kinds of activity. And we stood beside uh, my father talking to him. I was 16 years old. And I was fascinated with the uh, oscilloscope on the shelf above his head, routinely drawing a regular paced heartbeat, now familiar from all the medical shows in the last uh, 40 years. That's so, the one that goes, doot, doot, yeah. doot, doot. Okay. Uh, the nurse on duty saw us at Dad's bed and quickly came over to clean him up for the visitors, comb his hair, shave him. She was running late and hurriedly plugged his electric shaver into the outlet, the same outlet as the temporary pacemaker power supply. Almost immediately, the heartbeat trace went wild on the monitor. I had my eyes on it the whole time. It first confused as to whether I was seeing electronic interference or actual interference with the beating of my dad's heart. It quickly became clear that it was the latter. My dad yelled, almost leaping out of bed, and fell back dead. Oh, my God. Right in front of his face at 16 in the hospital because the nurse plugged this thing in. Wow. Awful. No happy ending here. They tried in vain to revive my father, age 59. A wrongful death lawsuit ensued, but my mother became too sick to go through with it. My understanding is that the pacemaker technology has vastly improved over the years. I'm not sure if there are other stories like mine. And here's a little interesting side note at the end. Uh, In the CCU at 16, I noticed four little shelves about seven feet off the ground in the corners of the room. I asked the resident pastor what they were there for. He informed me that someone was doing an experiment with near-death out-of-body experiences because of the high, quote, traffic in that room. Apparently, there were cards with little shapes on them, one on top of the uh, on top of the shelves. Had my dad been revived, they would have asked him if he recalled hovering above his bed, and did he look down and see those shapes? Weird. Weird. So that is a side note. And Vic... It's a hell of a side note. This is a long time ago, and uh, I wrote you back and said I was very sorry to hear about this, but it was a great story, and thanks for sharing. And we will definitely add uh, wrongful death uh, lawsuits to the suggestion box for sure. For sure. And thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Interesting and awful story. If you have any interesting or awful stories or you just want to say hi or what up or what what is it, mention unicorns maybe? Sure. Uh, you can put it in an email and send that to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the howstuffworks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?